We want to welcome you to the Reformed Informants. This is a podcast devoted to biblical exposition, systematic theology, and practical application for the good of the church. I'm Lance Burroughs. I'm TJ Darty. And we are the Reformed Informants. Man, TJ, I've got to ask you something. Actually, I need to know if you've ever experienced uh, what I just experienced over the weekend. Um, I went to Home Depot for one item and one item only. Once I arrived at Home Depot, I bought 10 other items and not the one item that, that, that I went to get. Have you ever done that before? Uh, yeah, I think, I think I would have to say yes. Although the only reason why I wouldn't walk out with the item I went for is if that item was not available or in stock, right? Like if I'm going to get something, that's what I'm going to get. You, you sound like, you sound like a lady going to Target, man. That's what you sound like. You sound like, sound like my wife saying, oh yeah, I went to go get this and came back with seven things that she didn't plan on getting. Well, we all, Lindsay Luther and I, we all went up to Home Depot and, uh, you know, solely to get, we needed a, a paint drop cloth and we were going to use the drop cloth to basically overlay one of our uh, chairs that we have in our master bedroom. And instead of getting a slip cover or anything of that sort, we were just yeah. going to use that because you can get a gray one because most of our room is painted gray and whatnot. So we get everything else but that. And I promise I looked at the paint section and the paint aisles like 15 times thinking just, to myself, do I need anything in there? And, oh my, oh, so you legitimately forgot. Oh, legitimately forgot. I mean, that's, it was ridiculous. Hey, that's, I, I don't know what to say, man. That's on you. <laughs> but I went back today. We went back today and made a beeline to the drop, <laughs> beeline to the paint section. Oh gosh, that's, that's gold. Uh, no, I, I don't know that I've had that same experience. You know, I thought whenever you started that story, I thought it might've been, uh, you know, one of those DIY projects around the house. It was going to turn into a lot bigger project, but it was something simple. So. Yeah, I've had a handful of those, man. I've had a handful of those too, yeah. but we can't reveal that yet on the podcast. <laughs> too many things happening. Too many things <laughs> happening. So, all right, Rand, what's uh, what's what's on uh, on the docket for today? What are we what are we chatting about? Yeah, we're going to continue with our uh, summertime series in Christology. I think this episode is part eight of our Christology summer series. Uh, last week we we walked through. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the week before that, of course, we had Chris Williams on for the wokeism episode, which is actually doing really well in terms of downloads and views and whatnot. Um, but yeah, we're, we're jumping back into our Christology uh, series. TJ, as per usual, I'm going to send it back to you um, uh, just to give us a, a, a brief uh, review, and then I'm going to introduce the episode, man. We're going to get rolling. We've got a lot of content to get through today. Yeah, we do. And before we start, I do need to uh, acknowledge yet again that Lance has done such an incredible job putting this guy together, just dragging me behind him with all his prep work. So, so glorious. So uh, appreciate your work on this as as usual, man. Um, but as you mentioned, we're in this uh, Christology series. And when we consider Christology or the doctrine of Christ, uh, theologians have often divided uh, this doctrine into two primary areas, and that is the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And that's what we've done as well. And so we've looked at the person of Christ. And so we talked about uh, his eternality, his preexistence. We've talked about his deity. We've talked about uh, simultaneously his humanity when he came to the earth and took on flesh and how those two 
uh, natures existed within the one person and the hypostatic union. And we talked about his who he was. And once we established his person, then we began to uh, discuss and to dive into uh, his work. And so when we did that, we transitioned to talk about uh, his role as the prophet, priest, and king, the fulfillment of those Old Testament offices. And then uh, last week, as you mentioned, we talked about his sacrificial death. He was the better sacrifice in Hebrews chapter 10. And so what we've seen up to this point is that uh, all of the Old Testament was leading up to the crescendo of Christ coming onto the scene. So we had this, this buildup of all these prophets and all these priests and all these sacrifices and all these kings, and it was all ultimately fulfilled uh, in Christ, the person of Christ who took on those particular roles and and did that particular work. And so uh, that's where we left off. We looked at uh, most recently his role as the sacrifice, uh, while simultaneously we've pointed out being the priest who offers the sacrifice. He's the great high priest, but he's also the sacrifice uh, on the cross. And that leads us, I think, into uh, a, a very perfect segue uh, into the next conversation. Lance, why don't you set the table for, for what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, if you're if you're a new listener uh, to the podcast, that was seven episodes wrapped up there in about a minute, a minute and a half. So go back and and start at the beginning with part one, and uh, th- then you'll be able to catch up to speed with us here as as we work our way into uh, part eight. So this is episode fifty three, Christology part eight, atonement. So we're going to talk about the atonement of Christ now. TJ, you and I were we were talking about this uh, before we hit record, um, uh, talking about defining our terms, and that we wanted to be precise um, as we talk about uh, the atonement. Um, and, and we also want to kind of give our listeners a heads up here that there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of terms. Just to put it simply, there are a lot of terms. Um, a lot of synonymous terms that go along with the atonement and that we'll use throughout this episode. Um, so we're going to begin, begin rather, we're going to begin by defining uh, atonement. Um, and then as we work through the episode, we may come across a few other words that we'll, we'll define those as we get there as well. But I think maybe in terms of terminology, uh, this episode will probably contain, um, maybe more difficult terms that we haven't necessarily touched on in the previous, you know, 50 episodes uh, of the podcast. You want to add to that? Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a, a good precursor. And, and I think the the one comment I'd like to make is that these are going to be biblical terms, uh, right? Like we're not, I don't like using terminology for terminology's sake. Now, terminology is helpful. Uh, there's a reason why these terms exist to be able to d- differentiate and be able to understand. But these are, we're talking about biblical terms. So when you're reading through the scriptures, you're going to see terms like the atonement. You're going to see terms like, and we won't talk about this today, but justification and sanctification and glorification. We're not just making those words up to sound like some kind of theological genius. No, those are biblical terms and we need to kind of grapple with them and, and make sense of what's being said. And so um, I, I, I'm looking forward to having this conversation because underneath of the word atonement, 
there's so much meaning. And it's easy as we're reading to see the word atonement or see the word atone and miss a lot of the depth that's underneath. So so really, that's, that's kind of the comment I wanted to make is just to say that we're, we're seeking to have this conversation for clarity and, and for really for biblical literacy's sake, because these are uh, concepts and terms that are prevalent uh, as we read through the scriptures. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I appreciate you adding that there. So as we begin to define atonement, uh, this word is most often found in connection with the Old Testament sacrificial system, which we've talked about all throughout this Christology series. So this word atonement is connected to that system, but it's also connected to Christ and his priestly office. Okay, so majority of the time when you come across this word atonement or this idea of atonement or the other synonymous words, it, you, you'll find this linkage between the Old Testament sacrificial system and then, of course, when you get to the New Testament, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. So Charles Hodge, great Princetonian theologian that we have quoted from often, uh, he defines atonement this way, to be or cause to be at one. And then he goes on to say, atonement is reconciliation. So to be or cause to be at one. And then he goes on to say, atonement is reconciliation. And throughout his explanation of what the atonement means and how to define it, he also uses the word satisfaction and uh, compensation. Okay, so the idea is to reconcile or to bring at one. Um, TJ, what do you want to add to that? No, I think that's that's really important when we see atonement under underlying that term is the understanding that there are two parties that are at odds with one another, right? So when when we see a need for atonement, we see atonement taking place automatically assumed in that is you have two parties, and, and we're going to see in this case it's God and sinful men uh, who are at odds with one another, or as Colossians would say, at enmity with one another. Uh, in other words, this there's there's not a there's a, a breach in the relationship that must be, as you mentioned, reconciled. So an atonement, uh, as we're going to see, is is bridging, is healing, is bringing these two parties together. So we need to to recognize that that already when you have uh, an act of atonement happening there's a separation between two parties in play and so when we bring the atonement into the equation what we're doing is is healing we're reconciling we are uh, there's a satisfaction of of the chasm that has been uh, created as we'll see uh, by sin uh, between those two parties now I like what you said there and I think that's the first time on the podcast you know you've said that I know I have not said it but I'd like to comment on that because it's going along with our discussion you you said that uh, atonement is um it's bridging together the two um and when we talked about Christ and his high priestly office that's essentially what a priest that's, that's what right. the word means a bridge builder okay so you, you man you described that perfectly there uh, there were two parties are involved that need to be reconciled. There's a, now there's an Old Testament example here uh, that we can work through Leviticus chapter five verses fourteen through sixteen. I won't read all of it, but this does reveal and show that uh, the two parties involved in this idea of atonement or reconciliation. Leviticus five fourteen says, "Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying." 
if a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord. Now, if you skip down to verse 16, the, the second part of verse 16, it says, The priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and it will be forgiven him. So just what you had mentioned, TJ, we see come across in the book of Leviticus. We have man sinning mm -hmm. with one party, and then we have an atonement for that party in order to be made right with the other party, which which would be God. Um, and I don't know if I'm getting ahead of myself here, but the Lord is commanding that atonement is only done this way. Mm. And in other words, this isn't Moses uh, coming up with this idea of satisfaction or reconciliation on his own. This is a command uh, that we see laid out by God. I, I don't think you're getting ahead of yourself. I think that's a, a, a necessary foundational component to this conversation to say that atonement or to make right or to reconcile with God, it has to be done on the terms of the offended party, right? So if you cross someone else, you don't get to determine how to make that right. Uh, the person who has been offended, in this case, the God whose law has been violated, whose, who, whose holiness has been transgressed, God sets the standard for the way in which reconciliation can occur. And so this is not haphazard. It's not uh, just whatever you feel like. Doing. There's, there's nothing that in and of yourself, in and of the sinner self, that the sinner has the ability to do outside of the commands of God, which would allow for atonement or reconciliation to occur. And I think that's foundational because, as we said, you have two parties that are uh, at, in, at, at odds with one another, but one party has offended the other. And so the offended party, which is God in this case, has set the terms by which the offending party, which is sinful man, may be reconciled back to him. And that's what the purpose of the law, uh, of course, we know that it was pointing forward to Christ, but the law laid out the means by which atonement could be made. Uh, and Leviticus 5 mentions this at the beginning, if a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord and against the Lord's holy thing. So even an unintentional sin requires uh, a specific uh, type of process for atonement to occur. Yeah, I want to, I, I've got to give you all the credit for that, because before we hit record, you were the one that, that brought that up. <laughs> and then as I was reading Leviticus chapter 5, verse 14, I'm like, dude, there it is. Like, I mean, <laughs> whoops. Yeah, I thought you were a heretic there for a while, but man, you, you totally <laughs> redeemed yourself. <laughs> but stick around. We'll see what happens. Oh, um, yeah, that's good, man. I, I appreciate you adding that and explaining that. That very helpful to our discussion. Even even in my own heart, my own mind, that that just brings a lot of clarification. I'll mm -hmm. I'll be able to make it through the episode now. <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah, well, to keep uh, you know, kind of unfolding this word atonement, um, it, it can also mean to coat or to cover. Uh, that same word is used in Genesis chapter 6, verse 14. When Noah's building the ark, he's, he's told to cover the inside and the outside of the ark with pitch. And that word cover there is the same word that's used all throughout the book of Leviticus um, that, that's translated uh, atonement. So again, this idea that there is a covering, there is a reconciliation done on God's terms and, and God's terms only. Um 
th this word could also be translated purge or pacify or propitiate. Um, I think we discussed even before we hit record, maybe doing an episode on propitiation, um, which is a possibility. No promises. Right. But, uh, right. <laughs> but, but, could but could easily be done when we think about the, the depths of that, because that word propitiation, which we will define, uh, well, put simply, it just means a satisfaction. Uh, right. So it's the satisfaction of the wrath of God uh, that needs to be poured out. And so to, when, when we see this word atonement, it, it carry it packs a punch. Right. Like like I think that's what we want to communicate. There's a theological depth to this term uh, that it's not just some kind of. Uh, like the Day of Atonement, when we gloss over that in the Old Testament, it's not just, hey, this is just like a day on the calendar uh, that that we just kind of push pause and we get a day off of work, you know? Like, no, this was this was a serious <laughs> thing, you know? Like, like it, that it's Monday, not, that Monday holiday, right? Like it was, oh, hey, Day of Atonement coming up, got a long weekend, you know? Like that's not that's not the way that 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 we should understand this term. It, it, there's a depth and a seriousness to it, and it's 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 pointing to um, the offense and the violation of God's holy law and the necessity for a reconciliation to occur. Uh, so so I, I think that we have to have that understanding in place. Yeah, so uh, to, to help us with that, we're going to read uh, two different definitions, one by Charles Hodge and one by James P. Boyce, and th those are general definitions for atonement. Um, and then where we're going to get into the nuances or the different components of atonement. And then we're going to start working through a biblical argument or a biblical case for uh, atonement. Um, so I'm going to read this Hodge quote. Uh, TJ, you can take Boyce, and then we'll walk through some of those subpoints. So Charles Hodge says, and this is how he defines uh, atonement, quote, Thus, when we speak of the atonement of Christ, of its necessity, efficacy, application or extent we mean christ's work what he did to expiate the sins of men so what christ did to expiate or make amends or extinguish the sins of men uh, that's that's charles hodge on uh the atonement yeah james uh pettigrew boyce uh 19th century baptist he writes uh in the sufferings and death of christ so talking about the, the, the days and hours leading up to and including his death on the cross, it says he incurred the penalty of the sins of those whose substitute he was so that he made a real satisfaction to the justice of God for the law which they had broken. So that's, that's the gospel. On this account, God now pardoned all their sins and being fully reconciled to them, his electing love flows out freely towards them. I, I think that's such a an incredible encapsulation of the gospel message to say that on the cross, the penalty of sin uh, that that includes the wrath of God that should be poured out upon us as sinners was covered. It was uh, it was uh, expiated. It was it was accomplished in the sacrifice to the to the point where he made a real satisfaction to the justice of God for the law that we'd broken because we had make we had violated that we had sinned and on this account god now pardons all their sins that's our sins and now we have a reconciled relationship with him because of it 
such a, a, a powerful picture of the gospel. And that's where uh, we need to go as we start to unpack the work of Christ on the cross and specifically the atonement that he accomplished. I mean, you bet you better move your laptop and your microphone into the worship center yeah. so you can get that pulpit, I mean, man, because, whew, man, there, there, there's a sermon waiting to come out, man. Yeah, you can't, I'm, you I'm, can't I'm sensing it. You can't tee it up for me like that. You can't give me that kind of quote and then expect me not to get excited. So, yeah. So we've mentioned and we're going to keep talking about James P. Boyce and his systematic, but he, he's got a systematic abstract of systematic theology. TJ, you're the one that actually put me onto this a couple years ago. But if uh, if you don't have James P. Boyce's abstract of systematic theology, you need to go purchase this thing today. Yeah, get on eBay, get on Amazon. If you're a book snob like TJ, buy that thing brand new for like 60 bucks. <laughs> I actually got but, this one used, You believe it or not. Man, dude, it's your sanctification, you're growing, man. <laughs> I appreciate your help there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we gave you some general definitions from Hodge and Boyce, but Boyce, he, he digs in a little deeper, and I think his systematic organizes this well, but he gives five sub points that... Uh, that help define our understanding of the atonement. So we'll alternate rolling through these. We won't give too much explanation here uh, because we're going to work through these as we get in the biblical text. Uh, but Boyce, he begins in his first subpoint that the sufferings and death of Christ were a real atonement. In other words, Boyce is arguing, biblically speaking, that Christ's atonement was real. In other words, it, it was active. It was for specific people. It mm. was for specific people. Now, when we get into soteriology, we'll talk about that a little more. Uh, but suffice it to say that Christ's atonement was real. Um, in other words, it, it's it wasn't optional, um, yeah. maybe you could say. Um, it wasn't um, hypothetical to some degree, um, but but it was an actual real atonement. Yeah, we will get into that more. I'm looking forward to that. But the best, maybe the most concise way I've heard that summarized is when Jesus went to the cross, he took names, right? Like he didn't just die for the possibility of salvation, but he took names and accomplished real atonement for individuals. Um, second, uh, Boyce continues, says that in making this atonement, Christ became the substitute of those whom he came to save. So that is to say that he was not atoning for his own sin. He wasn't atoning for any violation of God's holy law that he had incurred, but rather he was serving as a substitute in our place. And we've talked about that with his deity, his humanity, his the, his role as the mediator, the God-man, and how significant that was. But that's to say that he was a substitute for sinners. Yeah, Boyce goes on, point number three, that Christ bore the penalty of their transgressions. So, so an atonement includes Christ bearing the penalty of the sinner, which is so profound, so profound. Second uh, Corinthians 5, um, mm -hmm. 16 through 21, just just nails that. Yep. Uh, point four, he says, in so doing, he made ample satisfaction to the demands of the law and to the justice of God. So there you have his active obedience, his passive obedience in uh, his life and on the cross, and he satisfied uh, what the law demanded, but also God's perfect and holy justice in response to the law. Yeah, and point number five, Boyce says that Christ's atonement was an actual reconciliation 
between them and God. In, in other words, if you're listening and you are a believer, if you are a brother and sister in Christ, at the moment you were saved, you were reconciled to God. You were made right with God. Again, that's Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. Um, that's Romans chapter 5. But reconciliation between God and man, you were reconciled to God through Christ's atoning death. Um, again, which, which is so profound. Jesus is more than just a God-man that performs miracles. He, he's more than just a God-man that can preach uh, every sermon perfectly. Um, but w- within his life, his death, and his resurrection, there are so many components to his person and to his work that, that, that are totally brought to fruition um, in, in, in his uh, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, as, as I had just mentioned. I mean, again, this is why we're still talking about Christ this summer. This is why this is part eight, and it could really be part 80. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the conversation never really ends. That's right. That's right. Um, well, Lance, now that we've kind of given that overview and, and kind of the flyby version, I think it would be helpful if we went through and, and looked at what the Bible says about the atonement. But in doing so, I do think that it's helpful. And I love that you put this on the guide here that there are and have historically been uh, different views or theories on the atonement, what what was actually accomplished on the cross. And so very briefly, uh, let's let's kind of highlight some of the what we would consider the incorrect views. Now, these views have been held by uh, by, by Christians throughout uh, the history of the church. Uh, some of them uh, we greatly respect, but we would disagree with them. And I think we it's helpful to kind of point this out. Um, and, and then we'll talk about what we uh, see the Bible saying specifically uh, and which view we would hold to. So uh, the first one that has uh, gained some popularity uh, in in the course of Christian history is what's known as the ransom to Satan theory. And so this is the idea that on the cross, Jesus was paying a ransom and that ransom was being paid to Satan uh, for the souls of men. And so th- this comes from the idea that Jesus says he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so the question becomes, who is he paying his ransom to, and uh, the the theory suggests that perhaps he's paying the ransom to Satan, who's the ruler of the world. And so uh, Jesus pours out his blood uh, to pay uh, Satan to, to, to ransom those sinners out of his grasp. Now, uh, this view is most, uh, I, I think, most visibly represented in um, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. So if you know the, the book or at least the movie scene, right, where where Aslan uh, lays down his life and the queen is celebrating victoriously because she has she has been given his life, but then he comes back to life, he resurrects. And the problem with this theory is twofold. One is it's Satan demanding satisfaction, which is not the case. It's God whose law has been transgressed. And number two, it makes God some kind of a dishonest dealer, right? He's, it's like God is saying, hey, Satan, I will give my life up for you in the form of my son. And then Jesus resurrects and takes it back anyway. And so it, it's, a, it's a misconstruing of what Jesus meant when he said it's a ransom for many. And so uh, that's what's known as a ransom to Satan theory. Yeah, I would just add to that that the ransom to Satan theory is satanic. 
is, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's, it's not. It's not a. It's yeah. not a biblical view, right? We we want to reject right. this view, um, even though others have held it. We may respect them. C.S. Lewis holds that view. That's fine. We reject it because we think that that's a a misunderstanding of what the atonement is. Yeah, the uh, second incorrect view that we'll uh, fly over here is the Socinian view or the example theory. It's sometimes called. Uh, you can you can essentially boil down this view uh, that kind of plays off of God's justice. Uh, in other words, that God's justice is incompatible with His own character, which means that God is more benevolent and He is more loving and that his love overrides his justice, and he will forgive the sinner based on his love and, and, and sort of set aside uh, his, his justice, which, again, if you go back and listen to our Theology Proper series, we advocated for, biblically speaking, that all of Christ's, or God, rather, all of God's attributes, well, I guess, yeah, you might as well throw Christ in the mix, yeah. too. But <laughs> the Godhead. The, the Trinity, yeah, the Godhead. The, the Godhead, the Trinity's attributes, they, they all run simultaneously here. Mm-hmm. The, one of them isn't outweighing the other. They're not toggling back and forth like we've mentioned right. before. Right, that's good. Uh, related to the, this this view is uh, the, the theory of moral influence, um, w- which teaches that Christ's suffering and his death on the cross, they weren't actually designed to satisfy anything, but instead they revealed a love uh, which should lead to repentance. So in other words, it's it's when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't satisfying the wrath of God. He was just showing, he was demonstrating how much he loves us. And so when we see that, we are to be struck to the heart and think, wow, that's the kind of love that I need to to emulate. And so I then shall repent of my sin because I, I how could I not follow that kind of love. And so it's it's almost as if it's some kind of like a a demonstration uh, which leads us to morally respond. Uh, but in doing this, it shortchanges the understanding of the satisfaction of the wrath of God that was occurring on the cross. And so we would we would reject that view. Now now I would say that there is especially in these two views that we, there are truths to be gleaned from them. Like certainly God's love is in play here. And certainly uh, there's a, a, a kindness that leads to repentance. No question, but that's not the primary purpose of the atonement. Yeah. Uh, theory number four that we've got here on the guide is the middle theory. And it presents the idea that Christ has some power to pardon sin and that God might pardon sin without punishment or satisfaction. Uh, Again, this is, you know, you you see some of these views overlapping with one another. You see some of these theories overlapping with one another. But uh, I would like to add, just generally speaking, that all of these theories, all of these views end up tampering with uh, the Godhead. They, they, Mm -hmm. They tamper with attributes of God. And God cannot just randomly set aside his justice. And he cannot just randomly let sin go unpunished. His character doesn't allow that, um, which leads us to, uh, you know, quite honestly say that although these theories, to some degree, some components of them may be helpful and we can glean from them, like you said, TJ, but overall, we, we have to reject them because they tamper with the God of the Bible. Any other comments on those? 
No, that's good. I, I'm going to actually send it back to you here. Um, as we move our way into, into point number three of the episode guide, we're going to make a biblical case for the atonement. All right, we're going to make a biblical case for the atonement, not uh, for the atonement described in those theories, those aforementioned theories, but we're going to lay out the, the atonement, biblically speaking. Um, uh, we're, we're going to begin with the Old Testament, we're going to look at the New Testament, and then we're going to throw down a, a historical argument. That's really where the rest of the episode is going to go. So TJ, you explain the correct view of atonement, and then I'm going to give us just a, a brief overview of some of the components that we need to look for uh, in the Old Testament, specifically regarding the the atonement. Yeah. Um, what most theologians have uh, embraced, the terminology, and it's the terminology I'm most comfortable with, is is what's known as the vicarious penal substitution. Uh, I, I've heard one theologian uh, and apologist uh, comment and say that there is really only one biblical view of the atonement, and this is it. So we can say, we don't want to call it a uh, a a theory. This is the biblical understanding. What we would argue is the biblical understanding, and that is to say, it's a vicarious penal substitution. And vicarious and substitution carrying the the idea right that it's in our place, and uh, something that is a penal substitution is a, a a payment for the penalty of law of the the law's demands and. Of course, it has to be accepted by the lawgiver, in this case, the Father. So the vicarious penal substitution, which suggests that when Jesus went to the cross, in his death, he satisfied in our place the demands of the law, which were death and the shedding of blood as the perfect Lamb of God. And so um, that is the view and the understanding. When we say the atonement, that's what we're referencing. Um Lance, uh, pick up the mess there, man. What, what no, that, do you have? No, that, man, that was great. I appreciate you adding that and bringing clarification to what we mean when we say atonement. And it was helpful you describing those other two terms, uh, vicarious and penal. Um, so we're going to pick up with that idea as we work through the Old Testament and look at a few different texts here to see atonement. But the idea of vicarious atonement is all over the Old Testament. In other words, uh, atonement uh, happening through another person. When we say vicarious, we mean something outside of the sinner, mm. uh, an atonement happening from that second party that you were talking about, TJ, at the beginning of the episode. But we see that in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, if you've been listening to the Reformed Informants podcast since episode one, you know we go back to Genesis often. And you know, we we do that because it's so rich. And even when we mm. talk about the atonement, the vicarious atonement, we have to go there. Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned, uh, verse 21 says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God made the garments, the, the, the proper garments. Because remember, what did Adam and Eve initially do? What did they initially do? Yeah, man, they, they covered themselves with leaves, right? They got fig right. leaves. Right, so, so, so God says, uh, you know, that th- th- that is not it. Right. Th- 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 you, you cannot atone for your own sins. You cannot cover. Remember the word atonement means cover um, in some places. You cannot cover your own sins. So Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. 
Okay, so God sacrificed the first animal. God, God is the one already laying out this picture or this idea or this shadow that we talked about in Hebrews mm-hmm. chapter ten uh, that would ultimately be filled in Christ. But this is vicarious atonement, all you know, already being displayed in Genesis three. I, I, yeah, I love that, man. I love what you said that this is an outside, um, a, a, an outside uh, covering that's being made, and it, it comes from because. God has told, right? What does God tell Adam and Eve in the very beginning? The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so if there was to be made a an atonement or a covering or a satisfaction or a purging of that sin, Adam and Eve would have had to die if there were not a vicarious substitution that, were, that was placed in there. Uh, and so in, in that picture, that shadow, that type, that, that, that precursor to the gospel— which you've already mentioned in verse 21, God takes the animal skins from outside and vicariously of his own volition. He didn't have to do this. He could have demanded their lives, but instead he, he takes uh, the animal skin. And so I think that's that's foundational. Uh, Lance, what about the next chapter? That's Genesis 3. The next chapter, you get to Genesis 4. What happens there? How do we see this this pattern continue? Yeah, you've got the story of Cain and Abel, uh, which is a familiar portion of Scripture. Um, you've got offerings that are being offered by both Cain and Abel. Um, but you see in the text, uh, according to verse 3 of Genesis 4, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Verse 4, Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. It says at the end of verse 4, And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but not for Cain's. So you can see, even in Genesis chapter 4, that God has already laid out stipulations for how you must approach him. And it Mm -hmm. can't be on your own terms. Cain came on his own terms, and it was not accepted. Abel came on God's terms, and it was accepted. Again, you see God laying the framework or the groundwork for what atonement will look like throughout the rest of Scripture. And both Cain and Abel's point to say both Cain and Abel were at the same odds with God, right? Like they, they were both sinful creatures who were at enmity with God. And as you mentioned, Lance, like God's terms for accomplishing that uh, reconciliation had to be honored. Uh, you keep going in the book of Genesis, very familiar text in Genesis chapter 22. You have the story of Abraham and Isaac and you know that the... Um, Abraham was told that he was to sacrifice Isaac, his, his, his son, the promised son. And he's told to, to go, uh, to the, to the mountain and to, to, um, to, to give up the life of Isaac to the Lord. And he's willing to do so. Uh, but when Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behind him, he is told, uh, to stop. An angel comes and stops him and says that he looked and saw a ram caught in the thicket. And so we see then this ram serving as a vicarious substitute, right, for his son. So he was in obedience and in faith. He was going to, and we actually know from Hebrews chapter 11 that he was uh, confident that the Lord may raise him from the dead, right? Like he, he, he just trusted God. I don't know what this looks like, but in the moment, God provided a substitute. He provided a ram to be a, a vicarious substitute in the place of his son so that the son would be able to live. And that's a picture of the gospel in in that moment right there. Yeah, I would just add to that in Genesis 22, 8, 
Abraham, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the mm. burnt offering. God will provide. And down in verse 14, Abraham calls the name of that place, That's right. the Lord will provide. I mean, again, we, we, are, we are only 22 chapters into divine revelation, 22 chapters in, and we've got, you know, three explicit texts that identify this idea of a vicarious atonement, someone outside of, of, uh, of the sinner. Um, of course, you see this the most now uh, in the Mosaic Law. Um, you see this idea of atonement. Uh, you see these words, uh, iniquity, guilt, and then alongside of that, you see a punishment that must be inflicted on those who have iniquity and guilt, which like you said, TJ, back in Genesis 1 and 2, if you eat, you will die. So uh, the Old Testament law, specifically the Mosaic law, lays out what happens for your iniquities. It lays out what happens for your guilt because of your sin. Um, Leviticus chapter 5, verse 17 says, Now if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. This is all throughout Leviticus, by the way. A dozen or so times in Leviticus, you see this type of language. Man sins, so man must bear his own punishment. Notice it's the individual here. We're talking mm. about individuals, individuals bearing their punishment. That's Man, that's exactly right. And of course, we've talked about this, that the sacrifices that were uh, given and offered in order to cover that punishment and to cover that guilt and that iniquity pointed to the better sacrifice that we talked about last week in Hebrews chapter 10. And so the point was never for those individual animals to be able to cover that sin, but to show that there's a need because without them, the punishment that each individual sinner deserves was the shedding of their own blood and the eternal wrath of God, right? So we see that all throughout the Mosaic Law pointing to the need for a covering of that sin because it continues uh, and it persists each uh, each and every day in the hearts and the lives of uh, the people of Israel. Uh, you keep going in the Old Testament, uh, you get to, the, to get to the prophets and you see um, the the, the picture taking on more clarity. Uh, Lance, I love that you, you included here Isaiah 53, that incredible messianic prophecy. Uh, in verse 10, we see the Lord was pleased to crush him and to put him to grief, and he would render himself as a guilt offering. Verse 12, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I mean, that is exactly what we've been arguing for, right? That that he would endure, he would uh, he would take the punishment that the transgressors deserve, but he would take it in their place and that he would render himself as the offering. He would be the penal substitutionary uh, and vicarious atonement for sinners. And we see the same thing uh, prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, uh, verse 24, which says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to, break in, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So there was coming a time 
when this would be accomplished forever. And as we've seen, that was accomplished in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, these are, you know, the, the passages that we looked at in Genesis, uh, the overview of the Mosaic law, you know, all of those things, you know, pictured Christ. They were a shadow of Christ. But then when you get to Isaiah 53, which you just read from, you get to Daniel chapter 9, which you just read from, these texts are explicitly talking about Jesus. That's right. You know, there's no picture or shadow here. You've got Isaiah 700 years before the time of Jesus saying that he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That is explicit language. There, there is no ambiguity there. That, that is that is crystal clear. That's so amazing. And I think, and I'm guilty of this, that I, I get hung up on the idea of Isaiah 53 uh, predicting the cross, and you know Jesus being led, you know, to the slaughter. Um, but I sometimes miss out on the atonement here. Mm. I mean, this this is crystal clear evidence of the atonement. Uh, specifically by Jesus, I, and I love I love that you commented too that this was seven hundred years before, and yet it's written in that prophetic perfect tense, right? Where it's it's read as past tense that he he was pleased to crush him, and he, he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered because it was certain to happen. As Isaiah wrote this, he saw, he knew this was coming, and it was accomplished by the God man. And so it, it's it's incredible to me that 700 years prior, the atonement is explicitly and, and directly uh, described to us as we awaited, as the people of God awaited uh, the coming of the King to fulfill what had already been declared would occur. There's just such a beautiful picture of that occurring there in Isaiah 53. Yeah, and just, just to plug here, uh, for a book uh, by John MacArthur called "The Gospel of God," the gospel of the gospel according to God, rather, I think it's called "The Gospel According to God." That book goes through verse by verse uh, through Isaiah chapter fifty-three, and MacArthur he he argues that this is basically the words of the nation of Israel in the future, looking back to the events of Jesus. That's why it's it's mm. talking about. Or that's why TJ, like you mentioned, it's it's in past tense. Uh, Isaiah is prophesying about an event in the future, but he's writing it as if it's the nation of Israel repenting, you know, thousands of years after the crucifixion. Man, it it, it is so profound. But atonement here it is, man. I mean, atonement is locked yep. in. Yep. Uh, to that that entire chapter, and uh, there's more that we could say about Daniel chapter nine, but even that text, Daniel nine twenty four, that you read. That is a prophecy. Mm -hmm. That is a prophecy specifically about Christ, and that was fulfilled in AD thirty or AD thirty-three. It's just, I mean, this is this is scripture, man. This this yeah. is why we spend all of our lives reading and studying scripture because it, it's an ocean of truth that cannot be absorbed in one lifetime. Yes, man. Amen. Well, we're, we've only looked at the Old Testament, man. Take us to the New Testament where these things become even more explicit, even more clear. Where where are we going to go to to unpack and, and to understand this truth in the New Testament? Well, <laughs> man, I'm telling you, there are dozens and dozens and dozens of New Testament verses that talk about Christ's sacrificial death, his atonement, him making satisfaction, 
him reconciling uh, people to himself. So, I mean, we could spend all day recording <laughs> this episode, um, but I tried just to break this down into two specific components. Uh, the, the first one here, I'll walk through and then I'll send the second one your way. Um, but the first idea is that the New Testament often refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God, as, as the Lamb of God. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 29, of course, we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but behold, this is John the Baptist speaking, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what you're going to see in these texts, you have a connection between Jesus being called the Lamb, but the Lamb that removes sin, the, the, the Lamb that provides reconciliation, the Lamb that covers the sins and the transgressions of the people. Mm. Um in that same chapter, John 1, 36, uh, again, you see, Behold the Lamb of God. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 32, you've got the Ethiopian eunuch reading from Isaiah chapter 53. And then Philip comes on the scene and explains the gospel to him from Isaiah chapter 53. You, you can guarantee that Philip was explaining this idea that we've been uh, cultivating and massaging here on this episode. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul writes, for Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. So here Christ is called the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb going mm. all the way back to the book of Exodus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says that believers weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And then a handful of times in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is called the Lamb. So again, the idea here in connection with atonement is Jesus is the sacrificial Lamb that is covering the sins, the transgressions, and the guilt of the people whom God gave him to die for. We could go on and on, man. We yeah. could go on and on with this. Well, I love what you said there. You talk about the Lamb of God, and we've said this before, progressive revelation. When, when you see the Lamb of God automatically there is a a depth of connotation included in that which refers back to right the old testament uh sacrificial system and to say he is the lamb that would do what the whole sacrificial system was pointing towards and that is the covering of sin and so uh we see that as he's called the lamb of god that leads into what you have laid out for us the second aspect in the new testament and that is that jesus is said to have paid the penalty for sin and to have removed sin from us. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. You've given, what, seven or eight passages here. Just run through those real quick. Colossians chapter 1, so clear, verses 13 to 14 says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of of sins. Uh, Romans 5, 8 to 10, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, there's that uh, chasm between us, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So again, very explicit, very clear. This is, uh, we are building the case for the atonement 
directly from these texts um, that the wrath of God has been satisfied and the chasm between God and man has now been covered. Uh, the bridge has been built. Uh, the two parties have been reconciled by uh, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Uh, Acts 20, verse 28, Paul writing or, or speaking to the uh, Ephesian elders, and he speaks to them about shepherding the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Uh, Matthew 26, 28, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is when he's instituting the Lord's Supper. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 5, Galatians 1, Ephesians 5, Romans 4, we could do this all day long. The point is very clear that Jesus accomplished uh, in his uh, work on the cross, he accomplished the the payment for the penalty of sin and the removal of sin to the uh, extent that we've been, uh, sin has been removed and purged from us. And we've been, of course, as we know, imputed with the righteousness that comes uh, from his act of obedience in his life. Man, that's so good. That That is, that is so good. I've, Man, I go back and listen to all of our episodes, but I, I might have to go back and listen to this one a, a couple times. Man, that's that's so rich. Thanks for taking us through that. Um, now, we've got one more major component to the episode, and we'll get through that quick, so stick with us here. But there are a couple important distinctions um, th- that I want to make here b- before we move beyond the biblical case into the historical case. Um the first distinction that I want us to understand is that Christ did not become a sinner, but he was treated like a sinner. Uh, I think we have to understand, especially with all of this talk about Christ taking sins, uh, the sins of the world upon him, um, iniquities, transgressions, him making the payment or taking the penalty for those particular sins— I want us to understand that Christ himself, he did not become a sinner. Okay, There are some that would say, look, Christ became a sinner on the cross. This is mm. how, he, he, how he paid the penalty for sins, by becoming sin in terms of being a sinner. But that, that is so theologically out of bounds. If Christ becomes a sinner, let's say that Christ hypothetically is a sinner. How can he provide an atonement for a sinner? Right. If he himself is a sinner. That's well, that's that that completely removes the concept of being vicarious. Right. Like the only way that this that the atonement can be vicarious, which is the pattern that we've seen all throughout Scripture, is that there's an uh, something from the outside that has to come in and make amends for sinful man. That can only occur if the outside source that's coming in is not the same. Uh, I can't be an atonement for you. I'm a sinner. I need my own atoning. Someone else needs to atone for both of us. And so you're exactly right, man. That's that's so critical. Uh, Lance, I don't know if you want to go here. We, we can't spend too long, but I mean, this is the doctrine of imputation, right? That sin is imputed to him. He does not become a sinner, but God treats him uh, in uh, such a manner that that he bears the sin. It's been credited to his account. And, and in the same way, we are credited his righteousness. That's imputed to us. Uh, but we in and of ourselves are not righteous. We have the righteousness of Christ. Uh, it's not intrinsic. It's not imparted to us. It doesn't, it's not something we have because it's in and of us. Rather, we are treated as if it's what's in our account. Uh, and that's the distinction that I think you're wanting to make, and that's definitely a distinction worth making. 
Yeah, I appreciate you jumping in there and adding that last little nuance and component because that is critical. Uh, the only thing that I would add to that, uh, TJ, then we can move on to this this next point here, is that, look, if you take all of Scripture, you don't come to that conclusion because Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4 tell us that, that Christ was without sin. At, at all points, he was tempted, yet as we were, yet without sin. Okay, so the Bible isn't contradicting itself here. Jesus does not become a sinner. Instead, he is treated like one. That's he, good. He's, he's treated like one. Um, I think it would be good for us to make one more distinction because I think we spent so much time on, on the podcast developing the person of Christ. I want us to understand this, but Christ, as he made atonement, he wasn't toggling back and forth between his natures. Right, remember we said that Christ is one person with two natures, but he's not toggling back and forth throughout his lifetime, and he's definitely not toggling back and forth between the two natures here at the atonement. And TJ, you had mentioned that, so I'm going to swing it back to you just to make a couple comments here. Um, but we, we need to understand this, that everything that Christ did was in his person. That's he's right. not walking around differentiating between, well, you know, this morning I'm going to act like a human and this afternoon I'm just going to put my God hat on. Right. That's not what he's doing. Yeah. The, and, if, and if that sounds foreign to you, then I, well, I'm not really sure how to conceptualize that. Go back and listen to the hypostatic union episode uh, where we talked about this to say Jesus simply is fully God and he simply is fully man. That's the extent of it. It's not he's not half and half. He doesn't go back and forth. He doesn't uh, spend some time being God and sometime being man. No, he he just is. And so when he goes to the cross, it's not that the uh, human nature dies and, and and bears the weight of sin on the cross. It's it's the person of Jesus. It's fully. Uh, who is fully God and fully man. Um, I, I love this quote that you put on here from Boyce. It says, It was therefore not the human nature of Christ that was substituted for us, but Christ himself. Yet it was not Christ in his divine nature that suffered, but value was given to the suffering from its being the suffering of one who also essentially possessed the divine nature. In other words, exactly what we've been arguing, right? That the, this is the person of Christ, fully God and fully man, who suffers, who bears the, the weight of sin, uh, and who dies um, in our place as the vicarious uh, substitute uh, for the wrath of God. Yeah, that's good, TJ. I appreciate you reading that quote. Uh, man, we're coming up on the hour mark. Um, man, time is always getting away from us. <laughs> but we're going to conclude this episode, like we said we would, with the historical case for the atonement. Now, we understand that Looking back throughout church history isn't authoritative. Uh, if, if you're new to the podcast, we like to throw in uh, historical arguments, uh, you know, mainly to show support for uh, the, the biblical text that we're arguing for, but to also uh, just inform us that these ideas that we're talking about on the, con on the podcast aren't foreign concepts that right. these things have been discussed and articulated in previous centuries. So we've got a few of these here, and we're just going to go back and forth here and, and read through some of these. The first one I've got here is from Clement of Rome, first century preacher, pastor. And he says, because of the love he had for us, Jesus Christ our Lord, in accordance with God's will, gave his blood for us and his flesh for our flesh and his life for our lives. So again, we have the idea of atonement here in the first century. 
Um, and that's straightforward. Justin Martyr, second century. We've re- we've referenced uh, his uh, comments and work on here before, but Justin Martyr in the second century, one of the early church fathers, writes, the father wished him to suffer this, talking about the crucifixion and death, in order that by his stripes the human race might be healed, or as we would say, then reconciled to one another. So there's a healing that occurs as the sin of man is uh, purged or is covered or is atoned for um, on the cross. Athanasius in the fourth century, he said, it was necessary that the debt owed by everyone should be paid. And this debt owed was that everyone should die. For this particular reason, Jesus Christ came among us. I mean, that's just beautiful. The debt everyone owes should be paid, and the way that you pay that means that everyone should die. However, for this reason, Jesus Christ came to the earth. Man, I I love that. Yeah, gosh. Keep going in church history. We could do this all day, too. Um, You got a couple of the the most prominent and well-known reformers. Uh, You got Luther. Uh, Martin Luther, who, who who writes and says, there's no remedy, talking about the chasm, the, the separation between God and man, except for God's only son to step into our distress and himself to become man, as we've talked about before, to take upon himself the load of awful and eternal wrath and to make his own body and blood a sacrifice for sin. Uh, Calvin uh, echoes the exact same sentiment. He says the priestly offices belongs to Christ alone because by the sacrifice of his death, he blotted our own guilt and made satisfaction for our sins. I mean, uh, these these concepts, th- this is central to the gospel. Hopefully it's not a foreign idea, but this is wrapped up in the, in the idea of the work of Christ on the cross in accomplishing a- the atonement. Oh, man. Well, one last one here, and I'll just read part of it, but from the late J.I. Packer, he says, Because the penalty which was our due, the penalty which was our due was diverted onto Christ. Man, that that is just absolutely beautiful, and I think that really just sums up what we've been trying to convey in this episode. Um, So I'll, I'll kick us off here in terms of our in. Uh, the informants initiative. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we basically give one takeaway from the episode. My, my takeaway here uh, j- just quickly, TJ would be that this is just a reminder that I cannot save myself. I, I need what Luther would call alien righteousness. I-, I need the righteousness of God imputed to me through Jesus Christ. There is nothing I can do to cover my own sins like Adam and Eve attempted to do, like I attempted to do for 22 or 23 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I needed my sins to be covered by Christ, and that's what his atonement provides. And that's such a good takeaway. And I I would just build on that and echo back to say, um, when I consider this, and as we've talked for the last hour, man, um, I've just been reminded of a, I'm compelled really just to worship God for this, right? Like this is a, beautiful picture of the, the the gospel itself, whereby he chose willingly to offer his son in our place. It, this was not required at all on the part of God, and that Jesus is part of the uh, covenant of redemption, which we haven't really unpacked in this episode, but the Godhead 
covenanted with one another and each person of the Trinity agreed in, in unison to say, this is how we will save sinners. And Jesus came willingly to lay his life down. And uh, that that just is a picture of grace and mercy and love and humility, while at the same time, a picture of justice and wrath and righteousness all captured in one moment in time on the cross. And there's just something uh, about that that just drives us to worship. Just so, so thankful for that. Uh, Lance, anything else, man? It was such a good, such a good episode. I'm really appreciative of, of you doing the work on that because that was a lot of fun. Oh man, that, that, that was great. That was a fun episode. And we just want to give a quick shout out to all of our listeners. We appreciate you guys that continue to stream and download, man. We, 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 uh, we're, we're just thankful for you. Yeah. And speaking of that, if you are a listener who's been with us for a long time, make sure that you're subscribed to our podcast on iTunes and to our YouTube channel. You can go on there and give us a, a positive review, maybe leave a, 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 a some feedback on there for us to encourage others to listen. You can like us on Facebook at Reformed Informants and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at our underscore informants. And you can always find links to all of those social media platforms, any of our previous episodes, or to all of your uh, new Reformed Informants gear. You can find all of that on our website at www.themagistiesmen.com slash Reformed Informants. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics of discussion, feel free to email us at reformedinformants at gmail.com.